Pluto. This is the name of the ancient ruler of the underworld in Roman mythology, a name that some citizens of the Roman Empire were worried to even utter aloud for fear that they might draw the ire of the god of the dead. While the king of the gods, Jupiter, ruled over the sky, the clouds, lightning and thunder, Pluto was a deity ruling over the inner depths of the earth, the underworld realm just beyond the gates of hell. Pluto is also the name of a small, distant world on the outer boundaries of the solar system, discovered within the first half of the 20th century. Yet before it was known to exist, an extensive search for this world was mounted, spanning decades. That search would culminate in a striking discovery at the hands of a self-educated American farm boy who had yet to even attend college. But less than half a century after its discovery, Pluto's very existence would serve to ignite one of the most contentious and divisive debates in the history of astronomy. It would force us to reconsider everything we thought we knew about our solar system. A solar system that turned out to be far more expansive and far stranger than anyone would have ever predicted. It was, perhaps, the most contentious and controversial moment in astronomy since Galileo first turned his telescope to the night sky and wrote in detail about the heavenly bodies therein. Welcome to Universe University. I'm your host, Chris Grant, and we hope you'll join us today as we tell you the story of Pluto, the god of the underworld. Seventeen eighty one was a peculiar year in astronomy. The English astronomer Sir William Herschel discovered what is known today as the planet Uranus, but he did not initially believe that the faint point of light in his telescope was a planet. In fact, the paper he wrote on his discovery was titled Account of a Comet. As astronomers across Europe began conducting their own observations, many concluded that it didn't move like any comet that had ever been observed before. Interestingly enough, it turned out that Herschel hadn't been the first to misidentify the planet. Astronomers in the 1600s and 1700s had recorded observations of it, but believed it to be a star. It wasn't until 1783 that it was formally and universally acknowledged that Herschel had in fact discovered the seventh planet in our solar system. He named it after King George III, the King of England at the time, calling it Georgian Cetus, George's star, or more precisely, the planet George. It was the first time in human history that anyone had discovered a planet. In centuries past, there had been debate about whether the planets revolved around the Earth or the Sun. But the planets that were seen in the night sky as distant points of light were never actually discovered. Human beings could always see them with the naked eye on any clear night. Decades later, George would be renamed, like the other planets, after an ancient Roman deity, Uranus. Perhaps the confusion was understandable. It was quickly revealed that this particular planet's movement around the sun was rather peculiar. By this time, Newton's laws of motion had been around for nearly a century, and an astronomer and mathematician named Kepler had done his own work on predicting planetary motion. According to all modern science, the planet's orbit around the sun should have been quite different. If one planet had been hiding in plain sight for decades or even longer, then perhaps another one could be too. If there was just one more planet in the solar system, then perhaps it might account for the orbital path of Uranus. Yet no new planet was discovered. In the 1800s, a French mathematician named Lavarier made some calculations that predicted the existence of another planet, but many astronomers had little interest in mounting such a search. Finally, in 1846, 
a German astronomer by the name of Gall, used these calculations to find the planet Neptune, almost precisely where Lavarier predicted it would be, the eighth planet from the Sun. Then, for more than half a century, no new planets were discovered, though astronomy continued its collective quest to unlock the mysteries of the universe and, more specifically, to seek answers about the solar system we knew, the one with eight planets. One especially eccentric and especially wealthy American astronomer named Percival Lowell set his sights a little closer on Earth's cosmic backyard on the neighboring planet Mars. Lowell's imagination had been captivated by a description of Mars given by Italian astronomer Giovanni Schiaparelli, who observed a planet with a dynamic series of surface features, cracks and crevices crisscrossing the surface. Schiaparelli referred to them as channels, but unfortunately, when his words were translated into English, the word became canals, clearly implying that they were of artificial construction. From that time on, Lowell's fascination with Mars grew. Lowell speculated that a Martian super-civilization might have constructed canals to irrigate different areas of the planet's surface, and Lowell himself became convinced that he was able to see these artificial features from telescopes on Earth. In 1894, the Lowell Observatory was established in Arizona to study the planet Mars. To this day, it is one of the oldest astronomical observatories in North America. In the final years of his life, another notion in astronomy captivated Lowell's active imagination, Planet X. X standing for an unknown variable. Something still wasn't quite right about the orbit of Neptune. Was it possible that another planet might be to blame? A planet that was, as of yet, still undiscovered? Much like the Martian canals, there was no way to know for sure that this Planet X actually existed. The search for Planet X and the eventual results of that search would forever alter the life and career of one young, unlikely astronomer. For that matter, it would also alter astronomy itself. In 1906, the same year that Percival Lowell published his book, Mars and Its Canals, a boy named Clyde Tumbaugh was born in rural Streeter, Illinois. To suggest that this boy's ultimate destiny would lie in deep space on the outer edge of the solar system seemed unlikely, to say the least. At the time of Clyde's birth, it was unheard of for most Americans to have electric lights or indoor plumbing in their homes. The Wright brothers had made their first airplane flight only three years earlier. The radio had been invented only about a decade earlier. Clyde would be the oldest of six children on a farm that grew oats and corn. When he got older, he would later ride his bike 14 miles each day to attend classes at a rural one-room schoolhouse. In sixth grade, during a geography lesson, Clyde found his active mind wandering. He had already memorized every country in the world. It was then that a thought crept into his precocious intellect. What would geography be like on other planets? As it turned out, there was a way for Clyde to explore this question. His uncle had a small, meter-long telescope that he shared with his nephew, allowing Clyde to see the four largest moons of Jupiter, as well as the craters of the Earth's moon. Clyde's uncle allowed him to borrow the telescope, along with a small book on astronomy, which Clyde read over and over again until he had nearly memorized it. There were men mentioned in this book that would become his boyhood heroes. Galileo Galilei, Sir William Herschel, and even Percival Lowell. But Clyde's own dreams were far more modest. He hoped one day he might be able to pursue higher education and become a college professor. In 1922, Clyde and his family moved to a wheat farm in Kansas. But astronomy was never far from his mind. 
The skies were far clearer at night in Kansas than they were in Illinois, and soon he was able to identify every planet and every star constellation in the night sky. But even as his mind was drawn to the heavens, the intensive labor of farming the earth was a constant obligation. Clyde had to drop out of high school to help his father seed 250 acres with wheat. But his father had some old textbooks that he lent his son, one on physics and one on trigonometry. Sore after a hard day's work, each night, by the light of a kerosene lamp, Clyde taught himself advanced mathematics. He eventually returned to high school and graduated in 1925, but there was no money to send him to college. Perhaps with a good growing season, he might be able to save some money. In the meantime, he was going to need a bigger telescope. With a subscription to the magazine Popular Astronomy, Clyde read one article on Jupiter that captivated him, particularly because the author had mentioned using a homemade reflecting telescope to observe the planet. Clyde quickly drafted a letter to the author, asking him dozens of questions. Soon, he received a reply, with a number of different addresses, where he could send away for glass lenses, mirrors, and other accessories. Grinding his glass lenses in the family kitchen drew the ire of his mother and younger siblings, who occasionally found sandy grindings in their meals. Constructing a long tube of pine boards for the lenses, Clyde hoped to see the surface features of Mars. But alas, he was disappointed by its magnifying power. Nevertheless, he managed to observe a tiny star cluster in the constellation Hercules. He would later write, quote, To view such a compact swarm of stars at a distance of 20,000 light years overwhelms one with a sense of the eternal. Clyde had begun grinding lenses in his house and had read that mirrors needed to be tested in areas where temperatures were constant, so the family kitchen was far from ideal. Unlike other homes in Kansas, his farmhouse had no basement or cellar, so he persuaded his father to have one built. Naturally, it would serve a pragmatic purpose as a place to store food in the summer, like milk and eggs, and as a tornado shelter also. There was just one catch. Clyde would have to dig a hole himself. With a pickaxe and a shovel, he single-handedly excavated an area eight feet wide seven feet deep, and 24 feet long. Ideal dimensions for testing lenses and mirrors. Once the concrete was poured, he had the perfect workshop and immediately set to work making new lenses. The rest of the components were made from items that he found around the family farm. The base of the telescope came from an old cream separator. He also used the flywheel off a tractor and the axle from a 1910 Buick. The optical tube came from equipment on an old grain elevator, and an empty aluminum Coke can served as the covering for the eyepiece. He would one day regard it as the best telescope he ever built. Then, in the summer of 1928, a massive hailstorm struck the farm. The family managed to get their horses and cows inside the barn, but their fields were ripped apart. Clyde would later write, quote, There was not a spear of wheat left standing. We would be flat broke until next year. I said, Farming is not for me. The first chance I have of getting out of it, I'm going. But the prospect of going to college seemed more remote than ever. After that, Clyde was paid to run a neighbor's combine, and he saved every penny he could. In the autumn night, he looked through his telescope and sketched his observations of the planets Jupiter and Mars over a period of weeks. He had read about the Lowell Observatory in Popular Astronomy magazine and sent his illustrations to the director of the observatory, Dr. V. M. Silfer. Clyde was once quoted as saying, the planets are never the same twice. They're always different. 
so they could compare the markings I had drawn with the current photographs. And they knew that I was drawing what I was really seeing, and it wasn't copied from somewhere else. The staff at the observatory had made similar observations with superior equipment, and they were impressed by the drawings. Clyde received a letter back, asking him several questions, which he promptly responded to. Then another letter, with still more questions. In the final letter, he received a job offer, to come to Arizona and work at the Lowell Observatory. There was a new photographic telescope that had been constructed there, and it was about to go into operation. Clyde's younger siblings were now old enough to take his place doing work on the farm, and so, at 22 years old, Clyde packed his suitcase and prepared to leave home for the first time. He had only enough money to buy a one-way ticket, and anyway, he couldn't know when he would be coming home. His mother packed him some sandwiches in his suitcase, and his father took him to the train station. Shaking his son's hand a final time, his father simply said to him, Clyde, make yourself useful, and beware of easy women. After a long train ride, Clyde was greeted by Dr. V. M. Silfer at the train station, and taken to the observatory. The building needed employees to maintain their equipment, but they had limited funds to pay their employees. Clyde was the ideal candidate because he had no academic degree and could work for very little money. The Lowell Observatory was built at altitude, over a mile above sea level. It was January now, and temperatures at night often dropped well below freezing. They needed someone to sweep up at night, to keep snow off the observatory dome, and to clean telescopes. There was no heating inside the observatory dome, and it was often uncomfortably frigid in the early hours of the morning. Percival Lowell had died in 1916, having never found the elusive Planet X. But the search for the mysterious world was still very much alive at the Lowell Observatory, and their photographic telescope might be the key to making such a discovery. They would need their new 22-year-old employee to do the necessary grunt work. Photosensitive glass plates were loaded into the back of a large telescope before being exposed to the sky for long periods of time. Clyde would methodically photograph one small patch of the night sky at a time. As the Earth rotated, that particular view of random stars would start to change. To compensate for the Earth's rotation, a motor would slowly move the telescope to keep it on that same patch. The result would be countless glass plates covered in stars. If there were a distant planet out there, orbiting around the sun, it would appear as a tiny point of light, almost indistinguishable from the other stars. The difference was that it would seem to appear out of nowhere, and there would be no sign of it on the previous photographic plate. When the sun finally came up, Clyde had the tedious job of going through each glass plate, one by one, to see if any of those tiny dots appeared to move between plates. He used a device known as the Blink Comparator. The machine allowed him to examine two plates of the same portion of sky, taken at different times, switching back and forth between the two rapidly. As he blinked between the images, anything that shifted from one spot to another would become visible. The machine made his job less tedious, but only slightly. There were occasional false alarms, but never any clear images of a planet. Weeks turned to months. Clyde would later say the job involved very intense concentration, and that there was no room for a person to allow their mind to wander. He said it was brutal, but, quote, I knew that if I didn't do this job, they'd send me back home. And this was much better than pitching hay. The one-year anniversary of his arrival at the Lowell Observatory came and went. Then, one afternoon in February of 1930, he was blinking between two plates, and he noticed something that seemed to jump out at him, a faint dot that seemed to appear out of the blackness among the stars. Smudges and 
Photographic anomalies were not unheard of, so he needed to be sure. He quickly retrieved yet a third plate, close enough in time, hoping to sight this elusive blip yet again. Within less than 30 minutes, he confirmed it. That's it, he said to himself. It appeared very close to the region where Percival Lowell predicted it would be, the ninth planet from the sun. At only 24 years old, Clyde Tumbaugh became the first and only American to have ever discovered a planet. About a month later, on March 13th, the decision was made to formally announce the discovery to the world. It was the same day that Sir William Herschel had announced his discovery of Uranus, and coincidentally, it was also the birthday of the late Percival Lowell. Overnight, Clyde Tumbaugh became an international celebrity, with no college degree and just over one year working at a formal observatory, he had discovered a planet that Lowell had spent more than a decade of his life searching for. Clyde Tumbaugh received a scholarship to the University of Kansas, where he could get the education that he yearned so desperately for. Clyde considered Streeter as a possible name for the planet after his hometown in Illinois. When the news made the morning newspapers in Europe, a young schoolgirl in England named Venetia Burney had a well-connected grandfather that worked at Oxford University. Venetia suggested the name Pluto, after the Roman god of the underworld. Venetia's grandfather wrote a letter to the observatory, and Clyde was particularly pleased with the idea, since it included the letters P and L, the initials of Percival Lowell, his boyhood hero. In 1931, at Walt Disney Productions, Mickey Mouse's lovable cartoon dog was introduced to the world. His name, Pluto, was almost certainly inspired by the recent discovery. But the planet was so far away from the Earth, it was difficult to estimate how massive it was. Initial estimates suggested it was about the same mass as the Earth, but they couldn't be sure. Could a planet the size of the Earth really make any difference in influencing the orbit of a gigantic planet like Neptune? Or was Planet X still lurking out there, somewhere in deep space? Clyde Tumbaugh received a bachelor's degree, then a master's degree in astronomy, from the University of Kansas in the following years, returning to the Lowell Observatory every summer, and then finally on a more permanent basis when his education was finished. Unsure if still more additional planets lay beyond the orbit of Neptune, he continued to search. In his career, he found a total of 15 separate asteroids in deep space, but no other planets. He taught navigation in the U.S. Navy during World War II. Afterwards, he helped to create an optical tracking system for testing ballistic missiles at the White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico. Clyde Tumbaugh is also the most notable astronomer in history to go on record as having seen an unidentified flying object, or UFO, in his backyard in 1949. Recounting his experience, he said, quote, Admiring the beautiful, transparent sky of stars, I suddenly spied a geometrical group of faint bluish-green rectangles, similar to the Lubbock lights, my wife and her mother were sitting in the yard with me, and they saw them also. The group moved south-southeasterly. The individual rectangles became foreshortened, their space of formation smaller. There was no sound. I have done thousands of hours of night sky watching, but never saw a sight so strange as this. Such UFO sightings were not uncommon during the middle of the 20th century, the so-called Lubbock Lights, which he referenced, were a series of UFO sightings in Lubbock, Texas, around the same time period, over a series of weeks. Witnesses included three professors from Texas Tech, multiple women from Lubbock, and a college student who took several photographs that were never proven to be fabricated. While Clyde Tumbaugh couldn't explain the lights that he saw and speculated about the existence of extraterrestrial life in the universe, 
it is altogether unclear whether he thought flying saucers or UFOs were visitors from other planets. What we do know is that he was one of the few scientists and astronomers to take such ideas seriously. In the 1970s, an astronomer named Charlie Cowell undertook another ambitious search outside the orbit of Neptune for another additional planet, the tenth planet from the Sun. Cowell was no stranger to new discoveries. In fact, he had discovered two additional moons of the planet Jupiter, among other objects in outer space. This time, though, he found nothing. In 1978, Pluto's moon, later named Charon, was discovered, allowing astronomers to calculate Pluto's mass based on the orbit of its moon. It turned out that Pluto was actually smaller than even the Earth's moon, and only about 20% the size of the planet Earth. In the continental United States, the planet's diameter would stretch from California on the west coast to about the state of Kansas. Pluto was far too small to be disrupting Neptune's orbit. When the Voyager 2 space probe flew past Neptune in 1989, estimates of Neptune's exact mass changed, and the need for a theoretical Planet X all but disappeared. But there was certainly something strange about Pluto's orbit. The orbits of the eight other planets in the solar system seemed very similar, if not the same, flat and uniform, at least in relation to each other. In fact, the plane that those eight planets orbit around has a name, the ecliptic. By contrast, Pluto's orbit is tilted on its side, some 20 degrees in relation to the ecliptic. Stranger still, Pluto's orbit occasionally overlaps the orbit of Neptune, something that we don't see in the orbits of any other planets. In 1980, Tumbaugh wrote a book called Out of the Darkness, the Planet Pluto, which was used as a reference for this podcast. He taught astronomy at the Arizona State College and the University of California. In 1997, he died at the age of 90 years old. His discovery, his planet, remained a strange peculiarity, a tiny world of rock and ice in the outer solar system, an anomaly among the massive planets like Uranus and Neptune. We had four small, rocky planets in the inner solar system and four massive gas giants in the outer solar system. And at the end, Pluto, the lonely god of the underworld. Or so we thought. There was a tiny chunk of rock and ice, far smaller than Pluto, found just outside the orbit of Neptune in 1992, dubbed 15760 Albion. Other tiny objects were discovered later. This is what we today call the Kuiper Belt, a sea of debris, mostly small chunks of ice, past the orbit of Neptune on the outskirts of the solar system. It is very similar to the asteroid belt, which is comprised of chunks of space rock floating between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. It was around this time that a young astronomer named Mike Brown developed a hunch. Maybe, just maybe, there were still other planets yet to be found. The idea of Pluto being a unique planetary peculiarity of the outer solar system just seemed absurd to him. Of course, Brown would be the first to admit that scientists don't work on hunches, and he would need proof to support his assertion. Eventually, he sought to find just that at the Palomar Observatory in California. Telescopes were now far more powerful than they had been 70 years prior. Ironically, though, Brown had to use very much the same method that Clyde Tumbaugh used in 1930 to search for planets among photographs of stars on glass photographic plates. Brown looked at about 15% of the entire night sky in two years' time, but he believed it would be the right 15%. There was so much data, if Brown looked at each photographic plate in a blink comparator, just as Clyde Tumbaugh had, he calculated it would have taken him 40 years to go through them all. So instead, each glass plate 
was scanned into a computer, and Brown personally wrote a computer program to search for planetary blips on the glass plates. He had been writing computer programs to predict the movement of planets since he was in high school, and was confident that this method would yield results. But even with the help of computers, he had thousands of potential planet candidates that he had to check. As he went through thousands of computer images containing false positives, his confidence began to diminish, and he began to wonder if perhaps his hunch had been wrong. By that time, countless astronomers were discovering exoplanets, planets in orbit around other stars outside of our solar system. But almost everyone had stopped looking for planets within our own solar system. Then, in 2002, Brown's colleague and astronomer, Chadwick Trujillo, walked into Brown's office with an excited expression on his face and said, quote, We just found something bigger than Pluto in the pictures from last night. They dubbed it Object X. Later, it would take on a more formal name, Quawar, a creator deity from a Native American tribe in Southern California. Much like Pluto, though, upon closer examination, Quawar was not nearly as massive as astronomers initially believed. It was smaller than Pluto. In fact, most likely, it was smaller than Pluto's moon, Charon. Considering the inferior technology of decades past and the small size of the object, perhaps it made sense that no one had found it prior to 2002. For 70 years, Pluto was the smallest planet in the solar system. Now there was something even smaller. Was it right to call Quawar a planet? Brown searched through decades of old photographic plates from astronomer Charlie Cowell, now boxed up in an old basement. They revealed that Cowell had actually captured a faint image of Quawar decades earlier, but he never realized it. That was understandable enough. The object in the photographic plate was an extremely faint dot among many stars, and he had no advanced computers to help him. Using this old data, they were able to calculate an orbit and found that Quawar, like Pluto, had a strange tilted orbit. But this was not the only new world to be found in the outer reaches of the solar system. In late 2003, Brown discovered another strange object in space. The object's strange movement had concealed it from the team, leading Brown to nickname it the Flying Dutchman, after a ghost ship destined to never return to port, doomed to sail the oceans forever. Much like a ghost ship, this Flying Dutchman was indeed doomed to wander the outer reaches of space. Its orbit dips in somewhat close to Neptune, Pluto, and Quawar, before hurtling out into outer space. While Pluto orbits the Sun once every two and a half centuries, the Flying Dutchman appeared to orbit the Sun once every 11,000 years. Brown believed that this peculiar object fell into orbit around the Sun some 4.5 billion years ago, just after the Sun had formed. It was a sort of planetary fossil. The object about the same size as Quawar, was named Sedna, after a Native American Inuit goddess. But the most surprising discovery was still yet to come. On a morning in 2005, Mike Brown arrived at work a little early, stepping into his office. On the screen of his computer, he casually clicked his mouse and opened up a program designed to search for planets among photographs of stars. It was a seemingly ordinary day, and this task seemed just as mundane as checking one's email in the morning. But in a series of photos, he saw something that threatened to change not only his own career, but astronomy itself. He quickly drafted an email to Chadwick Trujillo and one other colleague. The subject line read, quote, Why we get up in the morning. In the text of the email, he offered some numbers, the magnitude of the object and its distance from the sun, with the words, New Bright Object, 
Please sit down and take a deep breath. Not only was the object further away from the planet Earth than any object ever discovered, it was almost certainly more massive than Pluto. A planet. The tenth planet from the sun. Before any formal announcement, he dubbed it Xena, a character from mythology, albeit 1990s television mythology. It had a strange, elongated orbit and would take 557 years to orbit the sun. In the end, it turned out to be only slightly smaller than Pluto, but even more massive. Its composition looked very much the same as Pluto, mostly rock and ice. Pluto was not a lonely planetary peculiarity in the solar system. There were others very much like it. In the media, initial reports of Xena unofficially labeled it the 10th planet. But Brown was skeptical. The other planets of the outer solar system, like Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, were far more massive than the Earth. But Pluto and Xena were far, far smaller than the planet Earth the dwarfs of the outer solar system, the runts of the litter. And Pluto and Xena were not alone either. There were many other smaller bodies in the Kuiper Belt still being discovered. Brown said, quote, People kept congratulating me on finding a planet, and I felt like a fraud. In Brown's eyes, the existence of Xena meant that Pluto was, in fact, not a planet. This would surely become a subject for debate. In his book, Brown recounts a conversation with his wife where she apparently asked him, quote, You're going to have people arguing that it is a planet, and you're going to stand up and say, No? Don't you think it would be, overall, better for astronomy to have new planets being discovered than to have old planets being killed? Brown's response, I think it's better to get it right. For the time being, Brown reluctantly used the term planet to describe Xena. The formal name that was finally given to this object was Eris, the Greek goddess of strife, envy, and discord. Perhaps the name was appropriate. But the debate that was brewing in astronomy was not totally without precedent. In 1801, an Italian astronomer named Piazzi sighted a peculiar tiny point of light in his telescope. His observations soon confirmed that it was moving, another wanderer in the sky, much like the planet Uranus discovered decades earlier. It was a small planet orbiting between Mars and Jupiter. It was named Ceres, the fifth planet from the Sun. Not long after, another planet was discovered, Pallas. Still others followed in a slew of new planetary discoveries in the 1800s. But even the best telescopes of the day couldn't see more than tiny points of light when they looked at Ceres and Pallas. Through the lens of their telescopes, Jupiter was a red and orange world with four moons orbiting around it. Ceres and Pallas looked like tiny, faint little stars orbiting the sun. It was concluded that in comparison to planets like Earth or Mars, these new planets were simply much, much smaller. In the end, astronomer William Herschel coined the term asteroid, which literally meant star-like. In reality, these tiny points of light were the first signs of misshapen chunks of space rock in the asteroid belt. While planets look like near-perfect spheres, Asteroids look more like lumpy potatoes, pieces of debris left over from the formation of the solar system. As decades passed, no one identified Ceres or Pallas as planets any longer. They were referred to as asteroids. There was very little debate on the subject. But Pluto's planetary status could not be downgraded so easily, nor could it escape the strong challenge it was now facing. In 2006, the debate came to a head in the Czech Republic in the city of Prague during a routine meeting of the International Astronomical Union, or IAU. There was a lingering question. 
Would Eris be admitted as a new planet? Or would Pluto be demoted? Mike Brown would call it the most contentious gathering in modern astronomical history. The definition of what constituted a planet would be brought to a vote, but the circumstances of that vote would be marred in controversy. While over 2,400 IAU members took part in the General Assembly in Prague for nearly two weeks, the vote would be taken on the last day of the conference. Most of the 2,400 astronomers in attendance had either left or were checking out of their hotel rooms. In the end, just 424 IAU members showed up to vote. Less than 5% of the world's astronomers. And astronomers from a wide variety of different fields of study would be voting. Some wanted Pluto to remain a planet. Others did not. Planetary scientists would not be given the sole authority to decide what constituted a planet. Professor Fran Bagnall worked with other astronomers on the Voyager space probes, and more recently worked on the Juno space probe currently in orbit around Jupiter. She said, quote, I'm a planetary scientist. I don't go look at their galaxies and say, this is a galaxy, this is not a galaxy. So why are they saying what's a planet and what's not a planet? Brown watched the vote closely. The 424 astronomers in attendance had spoken. It wasn't unanimous, but the majority of them had made a decision. On an August afternoon in 2006, Brown made the announcement to a group of reporters. Pluto is dead. The IAU would use three criteria to define a planet. One, it must orbit the sun. Two, it must have sufficient mass to assume a spherical or nearly spherical shape. And three, it must have cleared the neighborhood around its orbit of smaller objects and debris. Pluto met only the first two criteria. Under the new definition, it had not cleared its orbit. Bodies like Pluto were placed in an altogether separate category, dwarf planets. Officially, there are now five worlds in the solar system labeled dwarf planets. Pluto is one of them, but there are many, many other objects in the Kuiper Belt that will likely receive this label later on. Some prominent astronomers, like Neil deGrasse Tyson, praised the decision to strip Pluto of its planet status. Others did not. A mere few days after the IAU vote, hundreds of planetary scientists placed their signatures on a petition stating that they did not accept the IAU definition and would refuse to use it. Historian of science and astronomer Owen Gingrich said the new definition was confusing and unfortunate, saying, quote, I thought it made a very curious linguistic contradiction. A dwarf planet is not a planet? I thought it was very awkward. One planetary scientist even said that, by this definition, even the largest planet, Jupiter, may not be considered to have, quote, cleared its orbit, citing some 50,000 asteroids in that orbit, along with the planet Jupiter. Planetary scientist Alan Stern was responsible for circulating the petition challenging the IAU decision. He said that if the Earth were orbiting where Pluto is, the Earth would not fit the IAU definition of the planet. In essence, Pluto was demoted not based on its size, shape, or mass, but its location. Stern says the new definition of a planet is pedantic and overly complex. In layman's terms, he uses the television show Star Trek as an analogy, asking us to imagine the crew of the Starship Enterprise arriving at a spherical world, and Mr. Spock displays the image of this world on the viewing screen. In this analogy, Stern says, quote, Just by looking at the image, we know immediately whether it's a planet, a star, or an asteroid. In an IAU world, Spock would have to come back and say, Captain, let me survey the entire solar system and determine whatever objects are there. I'll integrate the orbits overnight. I'll get back to you tomorrow. But it's really not that hard. Neil deGrasse Tyson claims that he didn't kill Pluto, but that he was an accessory, 
saying that he drove the getaway car after the crime had been committed. Mike Brown went on to write a book about his exploits in astronomy titled How I Killed Pluto and Why It Had It Coming. We used that book as a reference for this podcast. Some might say that 2006 was a very dismal year for Pluto, but something else happened that same year. Just a few months before the IAU met in Prague, an Atlas rocket was launched near the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. On board that rocket was the New Horizons space probe, destined for Pluto, ready for a journey that would span roughly 3 billion miles in outer space, or 5 billion kilometers. It would last about a decade. At the time, it would be the fastest-moving space probe in history. It would be flying through space at over 30,000 miles per hour. Sending an unmanned space probe to Pluto had been discussed since the 1970s, and there were some who wanted Pluto to be one of the many stops made by the Voyager space probes. But it was later dropped from the list as a possible destination. NASA management was skeptical about whether it was worth it to spend so much money traveling to such a distant part of the solar system for a world that was, ultimately, so tiny. By the 1980s, planetary scientist Alan Stern and others advocating for a Pluto mission were known as the Pluto Underground. In the end, the finished New Horizons robotic space probe was created on a budget and it was relatively small in size compared to past space probes, it had one of the longest-range telecommunication systems in history. In order for it to stay in contact with the Earth, the onboard computers, as well as the seven scientific instruments on New Horizons, were extremely energy-efficient, and altogether would draw less energy than a 60-watt light bulb. Cruising towards the planet Jupiter, the probe completed a maneuver called a gravity assist. Harnessing the gravity of Jupiter, the probe slingshotted itself around the enormous planet, drastically increasing its speed to over 50,000 miles per hour. If any craft on Earth could travel at that speed, they would be able to travel from Washington, D.C. in the United States to Beijing, China, in less than 10 minutes' time. The probe was then placed in hibernation to be reactivated later when it drew close to Pluto. Neil deGrasse Tyson still gets asked about Pluto, much to his chagrin. He visited Tulane University in Louisiana in 2014, and when the subject came up, he said, quote, Get over it. It's still not a planet. There are six moons in the solar system bigger than Pluto. Of course, Tyson's statement is rather curious. Pluto was not demoted based on its size, Finally, in the summer of 2015, the New Horizons spacecraft approached a roughly textured, pale sphere shrouded in blackness. The probe's closest approach would take it less than 8,000 miles from the icy world's surface, snapping numerous photographs and sending them back to Earth. At such vast distances, it would take any signal from a space probe more than four hours to reach the Earth, and over four hours for anyone on Earth to transmit instructions back to the probe. We now know that Pluto has not one moon, but five moons, though Charon is still by far its largest moon. What Alan Stern and his team saw was a world that looked very much like a planet, and far more dynamic than almost anyone could have imagined. There were icy mountain ranges on Pluto, with the highest peaks standing 11,000 feet, or 3,500 meters above the surface. Probably no more than 100 million years old at most. Most of Pluto's surface was covered with nitrogen ice, with traces of methane. Geologically, the surface seemed younger than many had predicted. Clyde Tumbaugh was born in Illinois, moved to Kansas in childhood, and traveled out west when he left home to work at the Lowell Observatory. On that day in 2015, a special container 
with the cremated ashes of Clyde Tumbaugh's body, was on board the New Horizons space probe. A farm boy whose ultimate destiny was on the outskirts of the solar system. Photos of Pluto reveal the large, bright, white region on the planet's surface. From thousands of miles away in outer space, the shape of this area looked almost like a heart. It was named Tumbaugh Regio. Our understanding of the outer solar system has been transformed within the last 100 years, and it only seems to be getting stranger. In 2016, Mike Brown made a bold proposition. He noticed that the orbits of many of the tiny worlds in the Kuiper Belt seemed to be flung out in one particular direction. It doesn't appear to be random. There seems to be a pattern. Brown and one of his fellow astronomers proposed a radical new theory. The existence of a world some ten times more massive than the Earth, orbiting out past Neptune. The ninth planet from the Sun. A planet massive enough to be disrupting the orbits of several tiny worlds in the Kuiper Belt. But there is no agreement about this among astronomers, and it's a controversial proposition. As of yet, no telescopes have found any images of this theoretical planet? Is Percival Lowell's Planet X still out there in outer space, lurking in the shadows somewhere? We cannot say what Clyde Tumbaugh would have thought about Pluto's planetary status being challenged. He died before it happened. But we can say that he would have been pleased that there were other astronomers following in his footsteps diligently searching the outer boundaries of the solar system, looking out into deep space, plumbing the depths of the underworld in areas where his own telescopes couldn't see. If his legacy teaches us anything, it's that there might still be a few surprises left, even within our own solar system. Until then, Pluto is still out there, orbiting the sun every 248 years, the gatekeeper of the underworld, and out past the orbit of Pluto, the final resting place of Clyde Tumbaugh.